The Water Values Podcast, Session 36. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. Before we get into the show, I want to make sure that you're aware of some Twitter lists that I created a, a while ago, actually. Uh, several listeners have found them and subscribed to them, but I wanted to make sure others who might find them useful knew about them. Essentially, a Twitter list is a dedicated feed from certain Twitter users who are placed uh, onto that list, and it's a great way to follow people without actually following them. I have two Twitter lists that relate to water, a water sustainability list and a water infrastructure list. And there's a lot of overlap, but because they, these are public Twitter lists, you can subscribe to them and see a dedicated feed of water-related information and tweets without intermingling the feeds of other Twitter users. I hope you check it out. It's really a convenient way to use Twitter. In fact, if you, if you follow 100 people or more, it's one of the more effective and efficient ways to use Twitter. You can be focused on just that feed or that in, that subject matter you're interested in uh, and filter out all the other Twitter users who aren't tweeting about the subject that you're interested in. Anyway, I wanted to make sure you were aware of these Twitter lists and how to use them, and I hope you subscribe to one of the lists or even some of the other lists that I've got. You can find those lists uh, on my Twitter feed or my Twitter handle, uh, which is at DTM1993. Now on to today's show. Today, I welcome Lisa Sparrow, the president and CEO of Utilities, Inc., onto the show, and we recorded the interview at the National Association of Water Companies 2014 Water Summit. Lisa does a great job filling us in on utility acquisition strategy and what goes into that, from the condition of the assets to the regulatory environment in which the acquisition target finds itself. Uh, She also provides a lot of great information about the process, especially the role that certainty plays uh, when looking at acquisitions. Uh, Lisa and I also discuss gender issues in the utility world, and Lisa has a unique perspective on women's issues in the water industry and how we can promote greater involvement of women in the industry and greater attraction of women to the industry. It's an important issue. You know, I have a daughter, and I hope she isn't foreclosed from any opportunities just because of her gender. Uh, So I hope that she is able to to follow her path and make uh, her decisions without being restricted uh, as to what field she enters or, or what she does with her life. Uh, so I think it's important to hear Lisa's perspective on these gender issues in the utility industry. Again, she does a great job talking about it. So you're going to find this episode really interesting. And just a quick note, you might need to turn up the volume a little bit on this one. The input levels were down a little when it recorded, so you might need to enhance it with a little extra turn of the volume knob. And as always, make sure you listen through all the way to the end to hear the all-important disclaimer. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Sure. Um, well, first of all, Dave, thanks for having me here today. Appreciate it. Um, so. Uh, I actually, my background is in mechanical engineering, and so I came out of school. I worked in the automotive industry for about six years, and I was in the 
uh, oil and gas industry for 10, and then I was recruited out of the oil and gas industry to come to the water industry to run the operations. And you know, at the time, I didn't th actually think much about really what the actual um, product was. You know, quite honestly, I, as an engineer, I thought about, wow, it's it's infrastructure and it's stuff. And I, you know, come from a refining background. And I'm like, wow, it's pressure vessels and pipes, and uh, I get excited by those things and thinking about them in the context of a greater process. And so, so at first, it was just a natural transition from. Um, from pressure vessels in pipes, but higher pressures and temperatures and refining. So, oh wow, you know it's actually even a little easier in the in the water industry, and in that you're generally working at atmospheric uh, temperatures and lower pressures. And um, but then once I got to the industry and really thought about you know what it is we're doing and the impact that it has um, on. You know, people's daily lives, then it got a, a, a lot more personal and a lot more interesting. And then actually after I had kids, it even got more personal um, because I started thinking about something as simple as, um, wow, my house is old and I probably have lead pipes here and my children are drinking this water. And um, I, I actually in my head, you know, thought about something as warped as how long does it take for the water to get through the main to my house and about that distance and, you know, the GPMs and how long do I have to flush it to make sure they're not exposed to it. And then I started thinking, and then when I started thinking about that that's what we're doing for customers every day, you know, making sure that we're providing safe, reliable drinking water, then it, then it completely changed the nature of what I do and how I think about it and um, got a lot more personal at that point. So I'm the president and CEO of Utilities, Inc. Uh, Utilities, Inc. is a um, national water and wastewater utility uh, company. We're a little bit different than the other investor-owned utilities in the space in that we actually have uh, water and wastewater. And so we're kind of roughly split 50-50 on the revenue from those, two, um, from those two lines of business. And uh, one thing that um, that allows us to do, which is really nice, is that gives us access to reclaimed water as well. And one of the things that we've heard here in this conference is um, a fairly consistent theme around thinking about it as one water. And it really is. And you know, water gets used and reused in a variety of different ways, and it is one water. And so by having both water and wastewater, then, and having that access to, to reclaim water, we can think about the water cycle in, in complete totality. And we can think about pricing and um, infrastructure and uses all, all uh, together. Could you describe kind of the service area that utilities renders with wastewater and water? So we provide service to about uh, 300,000 homes nationwide. Uh, the vast majority of our systems are in the southeast, in North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida. Uh, Georgia and Louisiana, and then we have some smatterings out west and uh, in some other states. So we're in a total of 15 states, about to become 16, uh, with an acquisition process. And uh, so we're continually looking to grow. I think another thing that really sets us apart from some of our peers as well is that uh, so we have. 300,000 homes, but they actually come in the form of a lot of small systems. And so having that purview to a lot of, um, a lot of systems, uh, you know, we, we start to um, have a broad understanding of 
a representative sample of the 53,000 systems that exist across the country. And so a lot of times, you know, you'll have providers that own, you know, a couple small systems here and there, but we're made up almost entirely of small systems as it, the definition per, per the EPA of, of small systems. And, um, and that's a very different company to manage than having high concentrations of larger utilities around. So uh, first of all, I would start off with the need. We look at ourselves as a solutions provider, and that may be in the, f it, that could come in a variety of, of different forms. We, although we're focused on water and wastewater right now, we, that could involve other utilities as well. It could be gas or electric. You know, we're really focused on what a small to mid-sized community needs and working with them on whether we can solve, you know, solve the issues that they're trying to address. And sometimes it might be a troubled system. Uh, sometimes it might be they're trying to figure out how uh, it could be a very well-run system and they're trying to figure out how to s solve a contaminant issue or um, an impaired water stream if they're discharging wastewater into it and there has to be improvements there and so we really look at you know what can we bring to the table and how we can meet you know their needs and what kind of creative solutions that we can bring to bring to the table uh, and you know there's 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 lots of options out there right I mean it doesn't have to be kind of a one-size-fits-all model, and so we really focus on what it is that the community is trying to resolve and how we can best help them do that. From a, um, from targeting a state perspective, um, you know, I'd like to say that um, we all states are, are created equal, um, but not all regulatory environments are created equal, and, um, you know, like our peers in the industry, we're going to look for where we can, you know, earn a fair return on our investment. Uh, in whatever acquisition or investment that that we're making and so we will look at the mechanisms that various states may have in place that allow us to get close to um, an allowed return and I think it's important to think about returns as I think it's very easy in the industry to and I hear this a lot when people talk about a value of water they talk about um, profit motives and how there's not a place in water for profit and and I actually kind of agree with that kind of high altruistic way of thinking ab about water. You know, everyone in the country needs to have water, and we can talk about um, how that is paid for. But the reality is whether whether the service is provided through a municipality or whether it's provided through an investor-owned utility, whether it's provided through some type of um, public-private partnership, the infrastructure, it costs money. And there's a cost to that money. And so whether it's a municipal um, group issuing bonds, whether it's an investor putting in um, putting in equity and expecting a return to, on it, there's a cost to money. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about earning a return. It's not really so much, you know, a profit motivation as it is just trying to um, repay the sources that have contributed money through debt or equity to make sure that we've covered the cost of that money. Versus a well 
So we've seen some troubled utilities um, where it, it, this is um, this is not an exaggeration. I remember the first time I laid eyes on one of the acquisitions that we did, the electrical components in the well house were in a Tupperware box. <laughs> <laughs> they were in a Tupperware box, um, and you know, and, and you can think about that if if that is um, the first view that you get to the uh, utility, you can imagine that as you look deeper, it doesn't get any more impressive. Um, we have looked at other acquisitions where, uh, especially on the wastewater side, where we have seen raw sewage running in the ditch outside of the, um, outside of the wastewater treatment plant because they just do not have um, adequate treatment processes in place and or they don't have adequate um, retention ability as, as water comes into the system. And so uh, there could be a variety of things that lead to um, a troubled utility. It could be a lack of resources for the utility owner. It could be a lack of expertise. It could be a lack of commitment. You know, we've seen all three of those. Um, but we're able to come in and, and bring all of those things to the table. Um, we have a real good experience working with state regulators um, in terms of providing these troubled systems, making the necessary investments in them to bring them up to safe, reliable standards. On the side of um, could be a well-run utility, um, one of the things that, you know, we're living in a time and place where, um, we're in a time and a place where things that we, we didn't even know were contaminants before are suddenly appearing as contaminants. We are seeing that things that you know, we could measure before in barely parts per million now are measured in parts per billion, parts per trillion. We're seeing regulations set that we may not even know how to treat to that level or test to, the, test to that level. And though that requires a lot of money as well. Um, it requires, again, expertise. And so people that perhaps were interested in being in the utility industry at one point, and maybe it was a developer that put in a system way back when because they wanted um, a good alternative to well and septic systems, and they wanted a centralized water and wastewater system. At the time, it was easier. Maybe they were discharging into a waterway that wasn't impaired. The limits were much higher, much more, um, much more liberal. You could have, um, it could be a drinking water standard that over time has come down. Um, you know, the arsenic level was just recently moved from uh, 50 parts per billion down to 10 parts per billion. We see radium went from being measured in um, the different types of radiums down to a t t um, total combined radium level, and that evolution will continue. Uh, I suspect that um, it will will find ways probably to even make it faster and faster, even outside the confines of what the EPA is doing. We just saw that with in West Virginia, where we had a contaminant upstream that wasn't a regulated contaminant, but it's something that showed up in the drinking water. So I think our knowledge and our um, ability to detect and want to manage contaminants will, will continue. And so, and, and those all require money to be able to um, address those issues. And uh, so somebody who may have been interested in being in the utility space in the beginning when it was probably easier for them is not interested necessarily in continuing to make an investment in that type of model. It's not their core business. It's not where they, you know, where they want to, they'd rather put their money into other developments. And so we, we see a variety of circumstances that could bring someone to the table to, uh, to want to, um, 
uh, divest of their system. We see it with municipalities uh, that are starting to think about the use of their capital and where they want to have money and what they need to do with their own budgets that are now uh, perhaps interested in divesting as well. And so, so it could come from a variety of ways. And again, I think the industry can respond in a variety of ways too in terms of models, in terms of, of running these things. So I think that incentives can actually come from a couple different places. I think that you really want to see the incentives on both sides of the equation, both on the economic regulatory front and the environmental regulatory front. Um, on the environmental side, um, when you take over a system, especially the particularly troubled ones or, or the ones that are responding to some immediate capital need around, around the corner. Um, you want to know that you want to get clear with the regulator about what the expectations are. You want to have time to implement the solutions and um, ultimately be held accountable for those things. And so having a, um, having a regulator that is willing to work with you on what the particular issues are and get clear about what the solutions are is really a positive thing things to us. Um, no surprise, investors like certainty. So we, <laughs> so we like certainty on, on, the, on, the, on the environmental front. And, we, and then we like certainty on the economic front. So, so when um, looking at these systems, you know, it would be nice to say that everybody understands how water utilities are valued and, you know, we want to, you know, buy everything at rate base. So, um, because that is ultimately what um, the regulatory model would say that you're going to earn on, on your rate base. But, but the reality is that there are times when a utility um, may need to pay more for a system to acquire it, and uh, you may have an owner that isn't willing to let it go for less. There, there could be a variety of circumstances where that would result in, in you making an acquisition over the actual investment in the system, and that the community um, customers would want that to happen. They would want that transaction uh, to take place. So if that's going to take place, then, then the utility is going to need to be compensated for that return because if you think about it um, from an investor's standpoint, and a lot of times in our utilities, you know, it's pension money. It's just, it's just like you know, your 401k and people listening, their 401k, and they're looking for a return on that money. And so they'll look at it from the net investment standpoint. And so we need things like purchase acquisition adjustments to acknowledge the, the complete investment that you have in the uh, utility such that um, the total return ends up being something that is acceptable to the investor or that we're able to, to, to repay the debt you know, necessary to acquire the system. Sure. So you talked about, mentioned the acquisition adjustment. Are there regulatory challenges in, in getting those approved from the economic standpoint? Yeah, it actually varies by state. Um, we have seen um, some states that are um, very welcome and looking at creative models uh, to do that, and then others that have been a little more resistant to doing it. I would say that it's an evolution right now. I think that um, the pace 
it, it, you know, it's funny, it depends on what day you ask me the question. I would say that some days the pace of change is rapid, and then other days, you know, the pace of change is painfully slow. Um, but I think that there's a recognition um, across the board that that is um, a really uh, important aspect of rate making to have these acquisition adjustments to incent people to to want to take on um, these utilities that need a new home and need someone to take them in and invest and love them and you know make sure that they're managed in a responsible way. Sorry, I, I, I was thinking of this as you were answering the question. Is for those listeners who may not know what an acquisition adjustment is, can you describe what an, acquisi what an acquisition adjustment is? So. Uh, Keeping it out of the debits and credits and accounting <laughs> accounting language, um, I think you, you can essentially think about an acquisition adjustment as um, acknowledging the premium that may be paid over rate base and working that into the revenue requirement um, calculation such that the utility is earning a fair return on the total investment, not just the piece that's associated with, with the rate base. So that is certainly you know something that is out there too, and um, again, getting back to you know slightly trying to avoid the debits and credits of it, you, you can think about that the uh, the utility is going to look at a return on equity of you know, the, the total investment. And so there's a lot of different ways to, to skin the cat. And so one of the ways is to acknowledge the you know incremental um, uh, rate base. And that was what we had just talked about. But another way would be to to increase the ROE to acknowledge the investment maybe on a smaller portion but at a higher ROE such that you're still coming out with a, with a net revenue requirement that makes the investment in totality acceptable. <laughs> yeah, so um, we are looking at it um, kind of from beginning to end, and I will say this has been an evolution over time, too. Um, there was a history, you know, in our company where people would do, and this was a very long time ago, but, you know, maybe, you know, buy some systems and then um, commit to fix them, and you kind of find out the issues, you know, as you go forward. Um, you know, in more recent years, we have tended to focus more on um, a high degree of due diligence up front, and so we will look at things on paper as well as we will go out and kick the tires, you know, across the system. We'll look at the pipes. We'll look at how things are configured. We'll make sure that um, solutions can actually be put in place. There are there are some systems that we will look at that the um, resolutions are very very difficult. And if you are go and and that's not to say that we would not go into those um, would those types of acquisitions, but we would make sure probably upfront to have discussions with all of the stakeholders in that type of environment to understand that you know we can come in and we can be a solution here. Um, and, and we know how to fix these issues, but it is going to require X, Y, and Z from the stakeholders and try to bring everybody together to solve those issues up front. 
Um, but we will look at the conditions of the facilities. We will look at the requirements, um, you know, from an environmental standpoint. You know, uh, you know, you really want to. Um, it's not too different. Well, it's probably a lot different in some ways. You know, of, you know, you, when when you're buying any kind of, you know, you buy a used car. You know, you want to lay your eyes on it. You want to see it. You want to know what the history is. You want to know what. Um, how it's been taken care of. You want to know what your exposure is going forward, and, and you want to have um, an asset management plan about that facility, really, even before you take it over, and understand what what you would do, how you would improve things, and what kind of um, capital requirements are going to be needed, what kind of O and M um, um, treatment is going to be necessary, because some of these facilities that we look at, they're not even being properly maintained from an O and M perspective either, and. Um, in, in meeting environmental standards. And so um, you want to know all of that stuff walking into it so that you can have an educated conversation with, with the people who are going to be affected before they're having to live with it on the, on the back side of it. I think that's a very wise choice of looking at communication process and trying to keep that in. If, if we can go back to unpacking some of your earlier statements, uh, you mentioned that you know, your, your acquisition strategy somewhat on the state regulatory environment. So what are the different um, models, I'm assuming out there are deployed under some of your state regulations, but what would make utilities like want to go into a state environment and make these decisions? So first let me say broadly, I have hope for all the states. <laughs> some are some better, you know, better position than others right now, but I have hope for all of them. And I have that hope because ultimately, you know, we live in a world where our founding fathers fortunately set up a system that said that, you know, people who invest private money, you know, will eventually you know, be allowed to earn returns on that money and that you really can't have a government come in and um, regulate in such a way that is not going to allow a return or force you to invest money that you can't get a return on. Now, that said, you know, that you know, we have varying levels of productive regulatory environments. Um, the ones that you know, I personally think are the most um, conducive to wanting to invest are one certainty, uh, and certainty. Um, you know, that can come in different forms, but you, you know, in general, we want to know that if we do X, Y, and Z, then A, B, C, you know, is going to result in a, from from in that type of environment. Now, there's always things that are be you know changing, right? So I don't want to insinuate that. Gosh, it's got to be. Um, you know, perfect, 100% certain, because then you'd probably have the other side of the, you know, the argument come in and say, well, then you should, you know, have your ROE lowered because you know, you, you know, there's a higher level of certainty. Um, but we want to know that when we make an investment, we're going to earn a return on that, and we want to know how it's going. We don't, you know, no investor in utility likes surprises when it comes into to the regulatory environment. Um, I would describe the best ones as um, tough but fair. Um, I know that um, people. You know, will we'll always think that I'm probably biased in saying this, but I really, actually, truly believe my heart, and I believe this since I have come into this industry, that the stakeholders, the regulators, the investor in utilities, the customers, the environmental agencies, I believe our interests are all 100% aligned, and when people, when, when we start to, see in, in, and so the reg the regulatory results that I see. That are the best ones are when, or when, when those groups are aligned in the state, and they're they're working cooperatively to work to meet the needs of, of all involved. Because 
you know, from a utility perspective, it's very easy for me to say that we need to earn a return, earn a return on capital, because we do. Otherwise, we can't get in the, the investments or, or the debt to, to make the um, you know, to invest capital. But, but I also understand that customers have limitations, and that you know, especially during you know recent economic times, people are really facing a lot of difficulties, and so. So we don't want to go in and have a rate shock, you know, for customers. And so, um, so I understand. I understand that. I understand that we need to protect the environment as well. And so all these pieces have to work together. And so the best, to me, the best regulatory environments are the ones where everyone is working cooperatively towards the end, the end goal. Um, customers, as much as they don't want to pay more money for water infrastructure or, or you know, other infrastructure needs. Um, they want to have safe, reliable drinking water, and that, that costs money. And so we need to be stewards of that and make sure that we're able to provide that service. Um, and so ultimately, we need to make those investments. The, um, the utilities, you know, the, the utilities are not ultimately going to be successful if they're trying to get 20% returns, you know, you know, going in. And, you know, <laughs> sure, wouldn't that be nice? But that's not the kind of business, you know, that we're in. And so everyone's interests really are truly aligned, ultimately, at the end of the day. And so places where we have certainty, places where we have a, um, a very good chance, a real opportunity to earn our uh, allowed return are places where we are going to focus on. Because right now we have, um, in some jurisdictions, I would actually call it kind of an intellectual dishonesty that, you know, that companies are granted just for argument's sake, say a 10% ROE. But then they're disallowed um, expense increases that are coming up in, in the next year. Um, they're investing at multiples of depreciation. It's based on consumption from two years ago, not acknowledging the fact that we know we're going to have a decline in consumption. And so even though you might say you're granted a 10, you're really actually only going to see a 5 or 6 when, when things go on the books for the year. We're kidding ourselves then if we think we're attracting capital to the industry like it's a 10. And so we need to get honest about those. And, and so the best regulatory environments are the ones that, that understand that. They're committed to act on it and understand the importance of companies earning, um, having a reasonable chance to earn on their allowed ROEs. And, um, and so, yeah, so that, I mean, that's really where the types of places we would focus. Yeah, so I think it's important to go back to when I, you know, I mentioned that all of our interests are aligned. That doesn't mean that I think that everybody has the same role to play, because I think everyone has a different role. I think the utility is really, um, it's their responsibility to articulate the needs, you know, what environmental standards are coming with, you know, what investments they've made, what they need to make, and make their case, you know, for rates. I think it's important from a customer perspective to hear about the things that matter to them. Um, we can meet, for example, primary standards, but we need to also know that um, if somebody has a, 
issue with a secondary standard. We need to be working with that to meet at the customers, if that's something you know that they want, how we can meet that need. From a regulator perspective, you know, they have a responsibility to make sure that uh, to question the utility and make sure that the investments that we've made are prudent and that we have done it in a responsible way, that we've gone out and got bids and that we're in, that we're using the customer's money in the most responsible way. And so, so we all have a role to play in it, and it's a different role. But at the same time, also going back to something I said, it can be done cooperatively. And you know, I, w there are commissions that I can think of right now where it's a healthy conversation about the needs of the utility and the needs of the um, and the needs of the customers. That can be done in a um, keeping true to the objective and making sure that. Um, that you haven't kind of crossed a line there and that people aren't becoming compromised in the process, but also done it in a way that's respectful and understanding of and the knowledge and the expertise that everybody's bringing to the equation. And so, so the regulatory relationships that I have seen work the best are the ones that acknowledge kind of the boundaries and the limits, but don't come at each other from a confrontational standpoint such that there, there's not collaboration in the process. And that, so that, that I really truly believe, and I've seen it work, that, that the collaboration can happen while still everyone is coming at it from, from their respective places. And I think that, that, I think that is the most important thing. Sure. It's, just, it's just a non-antagonistic setting. One of the other things I wanted to chat with you about, Mr. Gray, you know, I have a daughter, and you being a female and the CEO of a major utility, I just wanted to uh, talk with you about how you perceive gender issues in the utility market, specifically. So I don't think it's really a secret that the utility industry um, is is probably not um, particularly balanced in terms of its representation of, of women. There's probably a lot of reasons for that, and it's not the only industry certainly that um, that suffers from that. Um, but you know what I will say is I think that some of the history of it starts actually from a very young age and making sure that. Um, young women in school have exposure to STEM degrees, you know, sci the science, technology, engineering, and math degrees that, um, can, that can, can be conducive to leading into these types of leadership positions. It doesn't have to happen that way. You could come at it from an accounting perspective, for example. But being in the um, infrastructure world, um, it helps to be able to speak, to speak that language. Um, and I think actually women really have, um, I think they bring some skills to it that they don't even know that they, they bring to it. Um, I think that actually STEM degrees are a natural fit um, for some women. But I also think that once on the scene that there is a role to play uh, for women in the industry in terms of leadership around difficult conversations because there's a lot of hard issues out there. You know, <laughs> As much as I love this conference every year, some of the discussions we've been having for a long time, and we're making a little bit of progress, but never as much as you know I'd like to see. And, and I think that women have a good um, role to play there in terms of being able to manage difficult conversations and um, introduce topics in a way that doesn't send everyone to their corners. And you know, one of the things we talk about in our company a lot is, are you an invitation for feedback? Are you an invitation to hear what's really going on out there? Are you, be, are you being in a way with people that they'll tell you what's really happening? Because that's a critical, um, that's a critical part of being a leader is knowing what's actually really going on in your organization. You, you think you do, and you can set your policies, and you can run your organization, but then you go out and actually talk to the guy in the field, and he's like, uh-uh. 
that is not the that's not the way it's happening. And all that great IT tool that you you put into place, yeah, that you know it's not really working for us. And and so. Um, you know, I think women can actually bring something to the table there, and that's not to say in any way that men can't do that too. But I, but I've seen it be a particularly natural skill of women to cr to create an environment where there can be um, open, honest, tough dialogue about tough issues, and that's where we are as an industry. We've got a lot of tough issues; they're not going to be easy to solve. The low-hanging fruit is done, and so I think that um, I think that women can be a powerful voice in that discussion, and I think we're we're moving in that direction. Um, I'd always like to see more of it. But, yeah. What do you think can attract more women to industry? It's a good question. Um, I think a, I think a lot of it is around access and um, even being introduced to the idea that it's a possibility for them. Um, you know, a lot of my friends chuckle when I, you know, I talk about being in the glamour industry. I started in automotive, and then I went to oil, and now I'm in sewage. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but, it, but, it, it, but that's, you know, and, and if you frame it that way, <laughs> it's probably a tough sell to some people. Um, but if you talk about the industry in terms of, uh, you know, its infrastructure, its people, um, it's, and, and you, know, you, you even talked about the regulators, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't care what industry you're in, it, you know, people are the ones, and relationships are the ones that are getting the, the work done. And so I think that if, you, if people think about the business in that way, and that, you know, one of the things I love about um, this industry, I loved it working in refining, I love it in this industry, is the camaraderie that happens and people coming together um, to work on a solution to something. There, I don't get a bigger charge than when I am out, you know, working with the guys in the field, hearing what, what's going on with them, thinking about problem solving with them. You know, when I was in refining and you're on a turnaround, everybody's working for the, for the same goal. And those are relational types of things that I am sure that people would not think about. Like, if I, if I frame it as automotive oil sewage, that sounds like one story. When I, when I talk about complex problems that require creative thinking and relationships, that, that's a different, that's a different uh, model. And to me, it becomes how we talk about it with people, and it means starting early as well. Because you know, I think that there's data out there that talks about on STEM degrees, for example, that if they don't, you know, if people haven't been, aren't thinking about it you know, by fourth grade, you know, they're probably not going to move there. Now, I think that's probably extreme. I think you can um, intervene in it much later and um, talk to people about the opportunities that are available in this industry, uh, probably later than fourth grade. <laughs> um, but, but I don't actually think we're doing much talking about it even in college. And um, so I think that the more, the more we talk about it, the more models that we have out there for people, I think we can create internships. I think we can you know, bring people in, you know, set up programs where you're just bringing people in to visit for a day and see what it's about, see what happens. And um, I think those are all the types of programs that we need to think about to get people involved more. Yeah, and that's a great perspective. And, and as you were answering that, I thought back to one of the things that you started off your, your interview with, and that is as, as you started working in the water industry and you said you had children, mm -hmm. you started to think about, well, you know, they're ingesting this product, and it really, um, it really affects a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lisa, you've been absolutely fantastic today. Really appreciated your perspective on uh, number one, the gender issues, uh, number two, uh, the, the nuts and bolts of how you're, you're kind of doing acquisition. So I wanted to really thank you and appreciate your time.
tell us a little uh, about, for those who want to find out more about the Children's Book and about you, uh, where they can go to find that information? Sure. Um, our website is www.uiwater.com. Uh, and you'll find a lot about our company there. Um, and I believe my contact information is there. <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn if, uh, if it's not there. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where it's at. Wonderful. Thanks very much, Lisa. Greatly appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lisa Sparrow, Utilities Inc.'s president and CEO. She was really terrific, and I greatly appreciate her taking time out of the National Association of Water Companies 2014 water summit to sit down with me uh, for a few minutes. Uh, here are my takeaways. First, when water utilities seek to make an acquisition, they're looking for certainty. Not 100% certainty, mind you, but a reasonable level of certainty. And Lisa made a great point that no matter if it's a municipal, an investor-owned, or a not-for-profit utility, there's a cost to the money that is invested in that utility. It's just a matter of repaying the investor, whether that investor takes the form of a municipal bondholder, a private investor, or even like a state revolving fund uh, that loaned the money to a not-for-profit utility. The certainty issue flows back into the regulatory scheme for each jurisdiction. You know, if a jurisdiction makes it incredibly difficult for the utility to earn a return or get rate recovery for its investments, those investments will lag and guess who ends up suffering? The investor might suffer in the near term, but in the long term, the customers suffer. That's right, each and every one of you suffer if the utility is not allowed to earn a return on its investment. You'll suffer from service interruptions, poorer water quality, and ultimately higher rates when it comes time to fix all the things that need fixing as a result of the deferred maintenance and lack of capital investment. Additionally, if the regulatory scheme allows utilities to recover their investments, that jurisdiction is more likely to see investment and thereby thereby have better infrastructure. And that it, this issue of certainty uh, is is so important because, as I've mentioned on this podcast before, the water utility industry is extremely fragmented, and I believe consolidation within the water utility industry is important to improve economies of scale, to provide greater access to technical know-how, which can solve environmental and other engineering problems, and it will allow greater access to lower-cost capital. You know, my uh, I'll get off the soapbox now. <laughs> Uh, my final takeaway concerns the gender issues that Lisa discussed, and she acknowledged that the utility industry has not been a leader in attracting women. I think, and I agree with Lisa, that we can change that, and there are lots of opportunities for women in the utility industry. We just need to make sure that girls and women are not discouraged from entering into the field and that they're given the opportunity to get into the utility industry. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 36. Leave a comment on the show notes or email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me, again, at DTM1993, and go ahead and check out those, uh, those Twitter lists I mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, you can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And don't forget to rate and please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast directories. And please don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, all of which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.
You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.